Hey, welcome to our podcast, Taco Tuesdays with Tim Goes Online. I'm Alana Becker, and I'm, I'm here again with Tim Mangler. Hey, Tim. Hey, Alana. How's it going? Well, I'm doing really well, and I'm excited for what we want to talk about today. For sure. Our topics today is missions. And with travel being halted a bit right now, um, Tim, I know you had plans to go to Africa this year, and I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there who also had plans that kind of have been halted. Uh, but seeing as you can't go, I was wondering if we could talk about that today and kind of get even a feel of how you even got started on all this. Would you, would you be a little comfortable to share on how you got involved with missions in general? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, in fact, the story of how we got involved in missions is, it's kind of a long story, I'll make it short, but it's also a very supernatural story. And over the years, I've heard so many people say, we would have never drawn it up this way. We would, have, we would have never thought that this is what we would do or how it would go, but God did it. And that's certainly my story. I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined that this is how things would end up and this is how it would go. But initially, our foray into missions started way back, I'm going to say maybe in 2008, thereabouts. Um, I was in a small group of pastors, other vineyard pastors. We would meet once a month. And there was another pastor in the group, Pastor George, who was involved with missions in Senegal, Africa. He was helping to lead the work there. And so because he and I developed this relationship from being in this pastor small group, he would talk about the work in Senegal and this and that. And he started to talk to me about it. He knew that our church at that time wasn't involved in missions because we were still a pretty new church. And so he just invited me. He's like, hey, would you think about joining us in this missions partnership in Senegal? And so I'm like, yeah, sure, we can do that. And, but initially that was, I think we were sending like $50 a month and we would just pray for what was happening in Senegal. And so that went on for quite a few years. I mean, the amount of money increased. I think it went to 100 a month and then 200 a month and, and it kept increasing from there. And then it was probably the end of 2012 that George invited me to go to Africa there was a meeting, a missions meeting that was going to be happening in Tanzania, Africa. And then we would we'd go to that meeting first, and then we would go back to Senegal and visit the work there, the children's home and, and everything that we had going there. And so he, he extended me this invitation, but honestly, I, I, I didn't have the call yet. I, I wasn't called by God, and I didn't have a vision for it. And so I just kind of dismissed it a little bit and just said, yeah, whatever, that's, that's nice. But I felt like the Lord spoke to me very clearly in that moment and said, well, just be honest with your congregation. Huh. I thought, okay, I, I can do that. Yeah. And so I stood up in front of the church one Sunday and I said, hey, guys, you know, we've been involved in this Senegal partnership, this missions partnership for a number of years now. And Pastor George has invited me to go with. We're going to go to Tanzania and attend this meeting and then go to Senegal and see the work. And that's all I said, because that's all the Lord said was to be honest with the congregation. So I just explained the invitation. Yeah. Well, three days later on Wednesday, uh, a guy called me. Turns out on that Sunday when I shared it, we had a first time visitor to our church. And three days later on Wednesday, that first time visitor called me and said, hey, I want to come by and, and talk to you and give you something. I said, okay. So he goes, can I come by at five o'clock? All right. So he comes by my office at five o'clock in the evening or the afternoon. And he comes walking up the door, and I can see he's got something in his hand. 
And as he gets close to me, he extends his hand. I can see it's a check. And he hands me a check and he says, my wife and I feel like the Lord told us to give this to you and tell you to go on mission. And oh. I looked and it, it was a check for $50,000. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. It is crazy. A first time visitor comes and hands you a check for $50,000 and tells you to go on missions. <laughs> well, God had my attention. Now. I yeah. told people that if he had given me $5,000, I don't know if it would have changed anything. I would have been like, yeah, whatever. I don't even know if I would have gone on the trip if he had given me $5,000, but he gave me $50,000. So I said, okay, God, wow, you've got my attention. And then leading up, so I went ahead and I planned the trip with Pastor George, and leading up to that trip, we just saw so many confirmations. It was, it was, it was unnerving how much God confirmed it. So again, we were going to go to Tanzania, or as we say here, Tanzania. Uh, we were going to go to uh, Tanzania first. And so after we get this $50,000 check, my wife and I are sitting in our family room watching a Sunday night football game. And as the game was starting, the camera was panning the stadium. And it comes over the tunnel where all the players run up out of their locker rooms. For sure. For under sure. the field. And right above that tunnel was simply the word or the name Tanzania. What the heck? And I rubbed my eyes and I went, did I just see that? And I went, honey, what did you just see? And she turns and she looks at me and she goes, it said Tanzania. <laughs> we sat there riveted to the TV for the rest of the game. I, I couldn't tell you who played in that game or who won. We sat through the rest of the game to see if we saw that again, and we never saw it again. The camera never showed that again. No way. Then a few days later, we had joked. Pastor George had, had joked with me that we were going to fly there on Turkish Airlines. Okay. And so my wife and I, we were kind of joking that, you know, we would be in the cargo hold of Turkish Airlines or whatever, and we were just joking with it because we didn't understand. But So a few nights after the football game, we're watching TV again. And this TV commercial starts. My wife was on the way. She was going up the stairs to go to bed. And she sees the commercial. She stops halfway up the stairs, and she's watching the commercial. I'm getting out of my chair, but I'm stopped, and I'm watching the commercial. And I'm like, wow, this is the weirdest. Com like, this commercial mesmerized us. And then at the end, it said, all the best to fly Turkish Air. Wow. Like, oh, no. Anyway. <laughs> So I go on the trip, we get to Tanzania, and it was great, it was wonderful, I enjoyed my time there, I met lots of amazing people. I met some people at that time that I didn't know were going to circle back into my life later and have a huge impact. Then we left uh, Tanzania and we went to uh, Senegal, and we get to the children's home. And I was really unprepared for what Senegal was going to be like, I was unprepared mm -hmm. for... Uh, the, the spiritual warfare that I could feel there, the, the spiritual tension that I could feel there. I was unprepared for um, uh, the culture. I, I, just, I just hadn't been prepared for it, and it was so different than Tanzania. It was just a shock to me. Anyway, one day while I'm in Senegal, I'm up on the roof of the building. Everything there is flat roofed because it rains very, very little. And so I'm standing on the roof. Life kind of happens on the roof. And I'm standing on the roof one day, and, and I said, I was, I was just very honest with God. I said, God, I hate it here. And God just responded and said, I hate it too. Mm. And that's why you're here. And I'm like, oh boy. And in that moment, 
in that moment, he broke my heart for Africa, for the people of Senegal. And then he gave me the call. So you can't do any of this until you're called by God to do it. You won't survive. And so in that moment of honesty, standing on the roof, I said, God, I hate it here. And he says, so do I. And that's why you're here. In that moment, I literally, he just broke my heart. I was just crushed for the people of Africa and Senegal. And he gave me the call. And that's what allowed me then to continue pressing in. Uh, so then later on that same trip, we're still in Senegal, and by this time, we've seen some amazing miracles. We've seen some incredible healings. We've seen some really good stuff happening. And again, I'm on the roof one day, and I said, God, why me? Like, I'm getting to see so much amazing stuff here. Why me? And he just said, because you were willing. Mm. You got off your couch, and you came when I called you to come. And since you've been obedient to come, now I can put the calling on you. And so that just reaffirmed the call all in that, in that moment, in that same time of being there. So anyway, that trip ends and then we come home. And it's maybe a couple of months after that trip, uh, I'm back home and I'm just, you know, I'm consumed now with Senegal and, and missions because God's put the call on my heart. One night I'm laying in bed, the lights are off, I'm in bed, I'm trying to go to sleep and I see an open-eyed vision. And I saw an open-eyed vision of the continent of Africa but all the borders, all the edges in the borders were fire and all the rivers throughout the continent were fire. Oh. I'm still trying to figure out what that may mean, but I saw the continent and I saw the fire mm -hmm. and the borders and the rivers. But then I just heard the Lord speak plain as day and said, I don't want you to be concerned with one nation. I want you to be concerned with the continent. Oh. And I'm like, what on earth does that mean? Like, you know, <laughs> there's 45 countries in Africa. Like, what on earth are you talking about? Um, so I, in that moment, then I had this call to be about the continent, even though I really didn't know what that meant. Well, then a few months after that, I get a message from a man named Sam, Sam Kiston. It was pastor, vineyard pastor down in South Africa. I had met him at that meeting in Tanzania. Okay. And wow. he calls me and he says, Hey, Tim, would you consider coming to Mozambique? We're doing some missions work there, and we'd love to have you join us. Would you come do an exploratory trip uh, in Mozambique? And so I said, sure. There was a mutual friend involved, someone that Sam knew and I knew. And that's how Sam got my contact information was through this other woman who's also a pastor. And so she and I and my wife, we were all going to go together and then meet up with Sam and go to, to Mozambique. So... As we're getting closer to when we're going to have to start planning for that trip to Mozambique, I think to myself, what am I doing? You know, this is crazy. We're a small church. We're already involved in Senegal. Uh, we can't get involved with another missions partnership with another country. That's crazy. So I think I'll call Sam back and tell him no, that I, I you know, I, I overstepped. I shouldn't have said that. So on a Saturday afternoon in the fall, I'm sitting downstairs. Uh, in the family room. What's funny is how often, as I'm telling this story now, I'm realizing how connected it was to television. And my wife and I don't have a TV anymore. So <laughs> I'm wondering how God's going to speak to me now that I don't have a TV. Anyway, um, I'm sitting downstairs in my family room and, I'm, and I had a college football game on, but I wasn't watching it. I a magazine had come in the mail. It was like a travels of the rich and famous kind of thing or something. It was something about travel. I don't know why it came in the mail, but it did. And so I'm sitting there in my chair, flipping through the magazine, but I'm not looking at the magazine. I'm not watching the football game. 
in my mind, I'm rehearsing what I'm going to tell Sam. Crazy, okay. About how I can't come. I should have said I, I could come. And so I'm just flipping through the magazine, and I, I finally just kind of stopped flipping. And I look down at the page, and I kid you not, in red letters on that page, it says, Next Stop Mozambique. Oh my gosh, wow. I mean, how much more clearly can God speak when in that very moment that I'm thinking about not going, in a random magazine, it says, Next Stop Mozambique. That's so crazy. Later, the Lord pointed out to me that it didn't say last stop Mozambique. It said next stop Mozambique. Okay, okay so it had, you had thought it said last stop, but it had well, said next well, stop. I, just, I knew it said next stop, and so in that moment, I knew we were going to Mozambique. Later, yeah. he said, no, it said next. You're going to more places yet. Oh, interesting. Oh, my goodness. So as I see that in the magazine, I think... I yelled out something. I think I yelled out something like, oh, crap. And my wife was upstairs, and she heard it. She's like, what? And I'm like, we are so going to Mozambique. And she's like, what do you mean? And I showed her the magazine, and we're both like, oh, my gosh. So we went to Mozambique, and then God broke our hearts again. He broke our hearts for Mozambique and the people of Mozambique and reaffirmed the call in my life and gave my wife a call. So now she's called to Africa and to Mozambique. And so we sat around at the end of that trip. That trip, we went to Mozambique, and then after a week or two there, then we went down to South Africa for another week to attend some missions meetings there. And at the end of those missions meetings, we were sitting around with the team of people that had been working in Mozambique, and there was some confusion about which way we should go. And so I kind of spoke up, and I said, you know, I don't think this is best idea here i think we should go this way and do this and yeah. so they all kind of like okay tim you know you should lead this thing and so just like that <laughs> I, I went from being a participant to being a leader uh in the work in mozambique but be careful um, when you share ideas yeah right so anyway that in, in a nutshell that's how we got called into mozambique or that's how we got called into missions and yeah. that's how we ended up in both senegal and mozambique and the lord's been speaking to us that there's going to be more so there'll be there'll be more nations that we're called to. We've visited other countries, but there will be other nations that we're called to. That's crazy. It's like, ooh, what's going to be next? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially with no TV, Tim. Yeah, right. going to have to mail you more magazines or something. Yeah, he's going to have to use magazines and open-eyed visions now. <laughs> That's amazing. That's such a neat story. Oh, my goodness. I think we're going to have to dive into more questions just relating to that story at some point, but um, would you be willing to just share some, what's like the craziest story you've experienced on the mission field, at least the craziest one you'd be comfortable sharing? Craziest story in general. Um, boy, yeah, we've had a few. Um, I, I, I think, I, I probably have to say that it was just this past fall in, in October of 2019 um, I had gone to Mozambique by myself. My wife wasn't able to go. And uh, we, were, we were there to visit a new place in the country that we hadn't been, but then to also visit the areas that had been devastated by the cyclones earlier in the year. Uh, one of the primary areas we work is the city of Barra and then the N6 corridor. It had been hit by Cyclone Adai in March of that year and just devastated the area. So... We had finished our time up north in Nampula. We had come back down into Barra, 
and just outside of Vera, there is an area known as Boozy, and Boozy is kind of like a New Orleans in terms of its geographicness. It's below floodplain, it's very low-lying, it's coastline, and so when the, when the cyclones hit, Boozy went under an incredible amount of water. We heard estimates it was under like 15 to 20 feet of water. Wow. So, but we had a church there. We had a church in Boozy. And so when we got there, they're like, we, we want to take you guys out to Boozy so that you can see how they're recovering and what's happened. And so you can visit the church and encourage the people and the pastor. The pastor of that church had been missing for a short time after the cyclone. He eventually turned up in a refugee camp. Uh, and so we're like, okay, let's go, let's go to go to Boozy. And so there's a road to get there from where we were at, but they said it's going to be like a it would be a six hour drive under the best of conditions. But we know that the road has been damaged and washed out in places. We we don't even know if it's passable necessarily. So we think the best way to get there is to take a boat. We're going to leave the port in Barra and we go out into the Indian Ocean, cross this bay and then into the mouth of the Boozy River and up the Boozy River to get to this village of Boozy. Okay. So like, okay, we, we, we agreed to that. And so the day of, of course, you know, in Africa, just everything tends to go not quite the way you planned it. You, you face a lot of obstacles and difficulties and you got to be able to roll with it. So we were late that morning. I don't remember what had happened in the morning, but we finally get there and we get to the boat and we had told the the boat that we'd hired, we told them that there was going to be six of us. Well, by the time we get there, there's 10 of us because other people found out we were going to Boozy and they wanted to come with, they wanted to go visit their relatives and friends in Boozy and hey, here's a free boat ride because, you know, Tim's paying for it, but it was good. So we, we let these people come with us. And so we get there and like, well, we need a bigger boat now because the boat we were going to take isn't big enough. And so it took like an hour for them to get a different boat. And the boat they bring is like this old-fashioned, homemade, wooden African boat. It wasn't like a dugout. It was made with boards, but like just boards like nailed together, like board on board. This wasn't like a, a production kind of boat. All right, no problem. They have this little tiny engine that they put on the back of the boat. So, and the boat can't come right up on shore. So we take off our socks and shoes and we wade out there. We get into the boat. And we're about to leave, and then this guy that kind of had a uniform-looking thing on, he comes down and he starts yelling at us in Portuguese, and I'm like, what's going on? And, well, it turns out he was asking for us to wash his hands, uh, which is a way that they ask for a bribe. Mm-hmm. And even though this wasn't any kind of an official port, this wasn't any kind out of an official dock, we were just launching off the beach, this guy is looking for money. And so that cost us quite a bit of additional time staying there. Finally, we shove off and we leave the owner of the boat to deal with this guy. We take off and initially it's fun. You know, we're joking around, we're laughing, we're having fun. We realize we don't have any shade. There's no covering on this boat. So one lady had a sheet in her backpack. And so we, one, another guy took off his shoes, took the shoelaces out of his shoes and then we used the shoelaces and the sheet to, to rig up like a makeshift canopy so that wow. a few of us could get in out of the sun. But I didn't fit, so I wasn't, I wasn't under, the, under the sheet. But we're going along for a couple hours. We go out, and then we go into this bay. And, it, you know, it was fun. It was all right. We were thinking this is going to be fine. We finally get into the Boozy River. We're seeing some of the evidence of the damage from the flooding, from the cyclones. And we're just into the Boozy River a little ways. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, we, you kind of feel the, bolt, the boat jolt just a little bit. 
And our, our crew was this one young man and then a boy, maybe 10-year-old boy. That was our crew, a young man and a boy. <clears throat> and as soon as we feel the boat jolt a little bit, the, the young man driving the boat shuts the engine off. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. And then he jumps out, and the boy jumps out, and they kind of start trying to push the boat a little bit. Well, we realize that we've hit a sandbar. Mm. Well, in the end, what we discovered was that because we were a few hours late, and this young man was probably very inexperienced, uh, we had missed the tide. Oh. And we had hit a sandbar, but if we had been in the right position of the river, we would have we would have been okay. But we were also losing the tide and losing the tide very quickly. And so they tried to push. And then a few other of our African brothers and sisters that were in the boat, they got out and they tried to push. And then they took all, they had a bunch of sand on the boat as ballast. They took all of that ballast sand off the boat. And then everybody got out of the boat and we all tried to push. By the time I jumped out of the boat, the water was only ankle deep. Wow. And I went, oh, guys, we are wasting our time bushing. Your ankle deep water is not going to float this boat. Because it was a decent size boat. Yeah. Probably 20 feet long. <clears throat> and so we're like, oh boy, what are we going to do? We're, you know, the water's going out. And everyone tries their cell phones. And, and we weren't like in the middle of nowhere. And so most people's cell phones still worked. And so several of the people with us, they're calling for help. They're, they're getting calls to go through for the most part. Sometimes they wouldn't go through, but they were. And, and so people knew where we were. We, we knew that we weren't completely stranded. But everybody would respond with, well, there's nothing we can do. Like, we can't come help you. We don't have a boat. We contacted the owner um, who, you know, who would, we had chartered the boat with. And she's like, sorry, I can't help you. She's like, my husband's a fisherman, but he's out at sea fishing, and he won't be back till dark. Uh, there's nothing I can do. I can't help you. And we finally called ahead to the village of Boozy where we were headed. And they said, well, we'll send somebody downstream to try to help you guys. Well, hours and hours and hours pass. No one comes. The boat from upstream never came. No one else comes. The tide goes out, and the sun is just beating down. The sand around the boat got so dry, we could eventually just sit down on the ground around the boat. Wow. I got pictures. It's really hilarious. I had my camera with me. I took pictures. So we're just sitting on the sand next to this boat. It looks really silly. But we also didn't have sunscreen, and I'm the only white man in the boat. Oh my goodness. Uh, although our African brothers and sisters all got sunburnt as well. And so I end up getting just sunburnt out of my mind because there was nowhere to get out of the sun. I eventually laid right up next to the boat because the boat was starting to cast a tiny little bit of a shadow. Okay. And I would just kind of lay in that little bit of a shadow to get out of the sun. Um, so hours and hours and go by. We're stranded. We don't have any water. Well, we had very little water with us. Uh, I had brought a, a like a typical bottle of water with, but because there was no shade, the sun had now heated it up to where you could have made tea with that water. Wow. So I kept sipping it a little bit, but sipping really hot water when you're out in the sun isn't great. So hours and hours and hours pass, and then eventually we notice the tide's coming back. We're like, oh, well, all right. well at least the tide's going to rescue us. So the water starts to come back, and pretty soon the water starts to creep around the boat, and... But several more hours go by because it takes a long time for the tide to come in. Pretty soon the water is completely all the way around the boat, but still nowhere near enough to float the boat. Yeah. And then at that point, the rescue boat that had come from upriver finally arrives. And I don't know, it took them like five hours to get there for some reason. I don't know why, but so they finally get there. 
but it was a much smaller boat, so we weren't all going to fit. Some of us had to go back. We had a very important meeting in the morning, but everyone wanted us to go forward. They were going to be upset if we didn't go forward and go to Boozy. So that takes some time to sort out. And um, what's interesting is my screensaver on my computer is my pictures. And while I'm talking about this, that very scene just flashed up on my screensaver oh, yeah. so cool. of the rescue book coming. Anyway, so the rescue book comes, and we kind of hash it out. We have to negotiate. Uh, I had to send a little bit of money with them to help them out. So some of the people with us get in the rescue boat, and because it was a smaller boat, it was floating. So they take off, and they head back up river to go to the village of Boozy. The rest of us, there was four of us, me, Sam, Zavimi, and his wife, and then our crew. We stayed with the original boat, but there still wasn't enough water to float that boat. So we just kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and finally it started to, to bob up and down a little bit. So... The crew pushed it out into deeper water. We all jumped in, and we take off, and we head back. Yeah. And, and at this point, I'm thinking, okay, you know, this has been just a great little distraction in our day, and I've got a terrible sunburn. And so we start taking off. We're heading back down a little bit of the Boozy River. We had gone up. We're nearing the entrance of the ocean. The sun is now setting. We left in the morning. Uh, we left, you know, quite early in the morning to get to the boat, but then we left on the boat trip late. But now the sun is setting. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful. I'm watching the sunset over the horizon and with the water in front of me. And so I get out my, picture, my camera and I'm just taking tons of pictures of this gorgeous, amazing sunset. I thought, oh, this is so cool. It, it, it ended up all right, you know. Yeah. Well, right as we get back into the Indian Ocean, into this huge bay of the Indian Ocean, the sun is now set. It's completely dark. The first thing I realized is that our boat does not have any lights of any kind. There is not a single light on this boat and the boat is painted dark blue oh my goodness with red stripes and so we are now completely in the dark and we're completely invisible to anybody else and also as soon as we get to the entrance into the into the mouth of this bay into the indian ocean gale force winds whip up now it wasn't a storm per se it might have just been because it was nightfall or whatever plus the tide is still coming in gale force winds, headwinds whip up, blowing right directly at us with huge monster waves. And so it's pitch black, and our boat, our boat is now just getting pounded and pounded and pounded by these waves. Uh, at one, the boat would just go way up and then just come crashing down onto the water. At one point when it crashed down, we heard a loud crack come out of the wooden boat. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, this boat is going to break apart. We're just getting pounded. The crew asked all of us to come to the very back of the boat. So we're, there was this one little pole that stuck up out of the, of the middle of the boat, but toward the back. It wasn't like a sail uh, post, you know. It, it was just a small wooden post that stuck up maybe four feet. And so all of us are hanging on to this post with dear life. We're hanging on to each other, and we're hanging on to this post. The boat is just getting pounded and pounded and pounded. And then the engine stalls. And we're like, oh, my gosh. Well, the fuel line had come disconnected. So now we're adrift, getting battered. Now we can't, he can't steer the boat. And so now, now we're in real trouble because we could start to get sideways to the waves. He's able to somehow, just with his hands, because, of course, he didn't have any tools with him, just with his hands, he somehow got the fuel line reconnected and then just sort of held it with his hand. 
and got the engine restarted. So we start to go again, but the waves are so big now that, and the engine wasn't the right size for this boat. So as we're getting pounded by these waves, as the front of the boat would crash down after a wave, the back of the boat would come up out of the water. So the engine kept coming up out of the water. And so maybe a third of the time, the engine wasn't in the water, so it wasn't doing anything. So we're making very, very slow progress because the engine's, you know, not always submerged under the water like it should be the prop. Later, when we got back, I realized that the prop was badly damaged too. So the prop was very inefficient to begin with and it wasn't in the water. And so we're out there, we're just getting pounded by the waves. We don't know how long this fuel line thing's gonna hold up and we're going along. And of course it's pitch, pitch black. There's no light pollution out there. But on the distant shore where we wanted to go, there was just two lights that we could see. Hmm. Once we got closer, we realized that there was two lights in a parking lot there. But that was all our, our guy that was running the boat, our, our driver, he just kept the bow of the boat focused toward those two lights on the shore. And for two hours, we were out there just getting pounded and pounded and pounded by these waves, making just minimal progress. There were Chinese fishing boats in the area, uh, but they had all shut down for the night, so their lights were turned off. Um, so we were we could kind of see them. We we're doing our best to avoid them, but they couldn't see us. We finally make it back to shore. I mean, it, that... We stayed calm through the whole time, and every time the boat would crash down, waves would just splash over the boat, so we were soaked. Yeah. Uh, Zavimi was joking that with each wave, God was baptizing us again, and so we would <laughs> we would just shout out, in the name of the Father and the Holy, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, every time a wave would crash over us. Um, poor Zavimi's wife was getting quite seasick, but we stayed calm and and we just trusted the Lord. Yeah. We get back to shore. Uh, we jump out of the boat. We're quite glad to be back on terra firma. And uh, we called for our driver to come pick us up in our vehicle. And he replied and said, sorry, the vehicle broke down today. I can't come get you. Oh, my goodness. So now now we're struck, stuck on this beach. Uh, very tired, very exhausted, very dehydrated, very sunburned. The woman who owned the boat called her son. and Her son owned a vehicle. So after some time, he came and picked us up and drove us back to where we were staying. And at that point I realized I probably had like a third degree sunburn. I mean, I've never been so sunburnt in my life um, because obviously we didn't anticipate being out there that long. But so total from the time we had left, the time we got back, it ended up being nine hours, but most of that time being either stranded on the sand or out in the waves getting pounded. So. It was, yeah, it was an incredible, crazy story. God was good. We survived, and it's fun to talk about it now, but wasn't wasn't quite how we'd planned that trip to go. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, after that, you're like, I don't know if you want to have a crazier story than that. Yeah. Um, could you share a crazy, uh, positive, like, healing story? What would you say that's the craziest healing you've seen? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll share two real quick, one from Senegal and one from Mozambique. So on my first trip to Senegal, it was after a Sunday morning church service. Uh, there was an old man there named Ducree, and Ducree came up to me through a translator and asked for prayer. He said his hips were in a lot of pain. He just had a tremendous amount of pain in his hips. 
And so I kind of figured maybe arthritis or something, given his age. And so I prayed for him for a little bit. And then I asked him how he was feeling. And he said he felt a little bit better. So I prayed for him some more. And I wasn't sure if he was really feeling better or just being kind to me or what. So I prayed for him a little bit more. And then he just walked away. He just like kind of just like left, just walked away. And I thought, well, all right, whatever. That's cool. And so we just continued to do our thing and the service wrapped up. And then sometime later, like several hours later in the afternoon, <clears throat> this man, Ducree, comes running back up to me, just jabbering away in his language. He spoke four languages. I don't know which language he was jabbering to me, but he comes running up to me, just talking and talking and talking. And I'm like, dude. So finally, uh, a woman came over and she started to translate. And this man decree says, I'm so sorry. I want to apologize for walking away from you earlier. But I had been completely overwhelmed by the presence of God. And I was completely healed. And I just needed to go be by myself with God. I was just so overwhelmed. And now he's actually jumping up and down like a little kid in a candy store. And the nurse, we have a nurse practitioner in, in, the, in the ministry there in Senegal. And she came over and, again, through the translator, she starts telling me, she goes, yes, he is truly healed because he was never able to move like this before. Um, and he was wearing me out, was her words. He was wearing me out, always looking for painkillers because he was in so much pain. And now he's jumping up and down. So it was just such a dramatic healing that was then verified by other people that knew he couldn't move like that. Well, then later in the day, that evening, actually, we go out to a remote village to try to do some evangelism and outreach in this village. And Ducree was, went with as part of that team, and he knew the village, and he knew the language that the chief spoke. And so when we got to the village, he asked if he could speak to the chief, and the chief agreed to, to let us in and speak to us. And so the, the chief rolls out his mats on the ground. Everyone sits on the ground. Funny, the chief gave me a chair to sit on, but everyone else sat on the mats on the ground. Mm. And then Ducree, who spoke the chief's language, began to tell the chief about Jesus and what Jesus had just done for him mm -hmm. in, in the healing in his hips. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a real holy moment. I got a picture of that. I had my camera in my lap, and I just kind of carefully rolled it up and clicked a little picture real discreetly. Um, and then one year in Senegal, I don't remember what year it was, but uh, it was, again, it was after a church service on a Sunday morning, and an old woman came up to me asking for prayer, and she stuck out her hand, and her hand was was very deformed, and you could tell like her hand didn't work, like her fingers were all crippled up, and she couldn't open her hand. But then I also noticed on her wrist, there was a big bump, like a tumor. Hmm. And so I kind of thought maybe my first initial impression was I thought maybe it was the tumor that was the problem, maybe it was cancer or whatever. So I just put my hand on the tumor, and I just prayed that in Jesus' name it would go away, be healed. I, I removed my hand, and the tumor was gone. wasn't there. And I'm just like, wow. And the woman realized the tumor was there, but then she still held her hand out to me like it still doesn't work. You know, no one was translating at this point, but I could tell that the hand was still all crippled up and gnarled. And so I put my hand on her hand again, and I prayed a second time, just be open in the name of Jesus. Whatever I prayed, I took my hand away, and her hand fully opened up right in front of all of us. At this point, a crowd had gathered around. Oh, wow. And her hand fully opened up, and she could fully use it. And she started going around, putting her hand right in people's faces, opening and closing <laughs> her, you know, like making a fist, opening and closing right in people's faces, and you know, with oh, great joy, like, look what I can do, look what I can do. Um, yeah, she was completely healed. That was, 
that was another great one. Oh my goodness, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, maybe just like one last story or so about, um, I know in the past you've just given a lot of tra traveling stories about how to get to locations. Um, I know your first story was kind of a travel story, but you never actually got somewhere with that. Um, so could you share a little bit about like your travel experience of how, how to get from location to location in Mozambique and what that's like? Yeah, I mean, we've had all kinds of travel difficulties, even just getting to Mozambique. Um, there was one year we were leaving Mozambique to come home back, you know, to the U.S. to Chicago here, and it took fifty hours, five zero, it took oh, fifty hours God. to come home uh, because we had so many delays and emergency landings and all kinds of stuff. But uh, an incontinent story: uh, I was actually in the country of Malawi. Um, I had flown into Lalongwe, uh, Malawi, and our key leader from Mozambique, Zavimbi, was going to drive from Mozambique to the long way and meet me at the airport. And then together we were gonna drive out to where there was a conference happening uh, near a place called Monkey Bay. When I think back to it, I think, well, that was, that was pretty risky on my part. I was trusting that Zavimbi would show up, but a thousand things could have gone wrong and he would have never made it to the airport and I would have been stuck oh, there. But anyway, wow. I get to the airport, he's there and I'm like, okay, let's go. And he's like, wait a minute, uh, uh, I got a call from somebody. There are two other Vineyard Brothers here coming in from, I can't remember now if it was Sudan or South Sudan. And they've they've asked if we can uh, pick them up and take them with us as well. I'm like, oh, okay, that'll be great. Cool. Awesome. So we're just waiting at the airport for these two brothers to come. Well, because they were from Sudan, uh, the Malawian government was really, really reluctant to let them in, even though they had their papers in order, everything was good. So they interrogated, interrogated them and held them up for, I think, close to two hours. Wow. And so we're just kind of standing there waiting. So finally, these two brothers from Sudan get, get through. Okay, great, let's go. So Vimy's like, okay, I've hired a guide to show us how to go, since I'm not familiar with this area and there are no maps and Google doesn't work there. And that's, that's what you do. You hire a local yeah, guide to show yeah, you how to get there. Sure. So, all right, great, let's go. Well, the guide's like, well, first I must go home and say goodbye to my family. All right, I understand. That's African culture. That's important. Okay. Okay. All right, so we kind of drive in the opposite direction to get to where this guy lives so he can say goodbye to his family and whatever. So, okay, let's go. All right, so we finally go, and we get on our way, and, and we start driving. And uh, no one really ever knows how long it's going to take to get to someplace. You can ask okay. them, how long will it take? And they'll tell you an hour, and then you ask them again, they say, no, three hours. And so we were getting that nebulous answer of how long it was going to take. So we just start driving and driving and driving and driving and driving and driving. And fortunately, the roads were good in Malawi. Unlike uh, Mozambique, the roads aren't always super good. And we're, we're on a good paved road. And we're, the, the speed limit was actually 120 kilometers, which I think, if I remember, it's about 70 miles an hour. So we're, we're cruising along at about 70 miles an hour. But they drive on the left side of the road, which they do in Mozambique. So our vehicle is set up for that. Yeah. So we're, we're cruising along, and all of a sudden, the lights, the headlights on the truck just go off. Oof. Now, you got to understand, in Mozambique, Mo, or in Malawi, too, most people do not have vehicles. Most people don't drive. Okay. Everybody walks or rides a bike, and they take their, their goat or their chickens or their dog with them, and there's animals grazing on the side of the road. That's just the culture. That's just normal Perfect. life. Yeah. And so as soon as the lights go off, we're, we're plunged into just absolute pitch blackness because we're not near any city. There's no light pollution. There are no street lights of any kind. 
So it's so dark you can't even see the front of the truck. Wow. And my first thought was, oh no, we're going to hit a person or, no, a or something because no. they're all along the side of the road, right? Yeah. So we're all holding our breaths. Vimy's doing his best to slow down as quickly as possible. And, but you can't tell what's straight or if the road bent a little bit, you know, when it's that dark. And so then all of a sudden we feel the left wheels drop off the road. Again, you're driving on the left side of the yeah, road. Okay. Left wheels dropped off the side of the road onto the shoulder. And so now we all just kind of tense up. And again, I'm just like, I'm waiting for, you know, something, a person or a goat to come flying over the vehicle because we don't know what's right in front of us. Yeah. Thankfully, Jesus took care of us. We get the vehicle to a complete stop and we didn't hit anybody. So, and once the vehicle comes to a complete stop, there was like a couple seconds of silence. And then in English, all five of us are like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> like, oh. like at the same time, we're all like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right? So now, now what do we do, right? Yeah. So Zavimi turned on the four-way flashers and they worked. And so we start driving real slow, like maybe five or 10 miles an hour, okay. just in the little bit that you can see in the flashers right. going on and off, on and off, on and off. So you really can't see, just a little bit, right? right. And then the headlights would come on and we could speed up to maybe 30 or 40 and then the headlights would go off again. Yeah, okay. You'd slow down and drive with the flashers. So we're, we're continuing to drive this way, but we, now we keep encountering roadblocks. That evening, we got stopped five times by government roadblocks. Wow. And the government official would look in the truck. He would see that the truck was registered in Mozambique and we're in Malawi. He would look in the front and see me in the front seat. And then he would look in the back and he could tell that the brothers in the back weren't from Malawi. And yeah. so he, you know, they'd all like, they want to see our papers. And so we're showing them this. So now we've got a guy from Mozambique, a guy from the USA, two guys from Sudan. So we got pulled over five times in one night. And they went through our papers and they wanted to see everything. One time they were demanding to search our luggage, but the local guide that was with us kind of talked them down like, no, no, these guys are cool. Uh, just let them go. One time when, when, when they, we got pulled over, I, the guy spoke English that time. The government official spoke English. And so I said, hey, we're all pastors and we're here for a pastor's conference. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he just let us go. Mm. So five times we get pulled over, but we're still driving with the headlights on again, off again, the flashers. And then our local guide thinks that he knows like a shortcut to get oh, it to where we're headed, right? And so we turn down a, a road that's not quite as high quality. And we actually got to a point in this road, and we're in a very mountainous area. We're heading toward an area called Lucky Bay, right on the edge of Lake Malawi. And it's kind of mountainous in some of those areas. And we get to a spot in this road where the road was so steep, the truck actually stalled. Oh my goodness. And I thought, oh no, we're going to like have to unload all of our luggage. Everyone get out, unload all of our luggage and maybe even push or something to get the truck out. Yeah. Well, he, he gets the truck started and, you know, just gave it some more fuel and we were able to make it up the hill. All right. Uh, and so then this shortcut, I don't know, maybe wasn't quite the shortcut that, that he thought it was, but we eventually get going and, and we're going along. And then we get close to the place that we're, that we're supposed to be staying at, but they'd had a lot of rain and there was this huge washout gully. And luckily our, our truck is four wheel drive, but we kind of had to angle the truck down the one side of the gully 
and then kind of angle it back up the other side of the gully to get through this this washout gully and then we we've we got to the place but then once we get there it's it's now like two in the morning or something crazy and so they thought we weren't coming and so we start pounding on the gate some poor guy finally comes and opens the gate and lets us in but it you know we got started very late because of having to wait for the brothers from sudan to get through yeah. government clearance and then all the difficulties getting there that was quite an evening quite a trip oh my goodness that's crazy wow well just to wrap up here and this probably could be a whole topic on its own what would you say to some people interested in going into missions yeah i think it, it could be a whole episode but it starts with having to get a calling yeah and only god can do that but you can position yourself uh, so like i think early on i just when pastor george invited me to join the missions partnership in senegal i just said yes and then it was through that obedience and that faithfulness that, that the Lord gave me the call. And so there's a couple of things that I usually suggest to people. Um, if, if you're just completely in the dark and don't have any idea where to start, get a world map. Get a huge world map and just start praying over it. Wow. And see if the Lord highlights or brings any part of the world to your attention or just you start to feel like you're drawn to a certain area on that world map uh another way if you do have friends or people that are connected in missions and doing missions um just ask to be included in their communications if they have an email a newsletter yeah. whatever and again just see if the lord is speaking to you in any of that if you start to get a heart uh for any of what they're communicating what their updates are about and then certainly again if you've got people that are involved in missions anywhere Ask to go with them. Just say, hey, can I go with on a trip? Can I go with uh, to a planning meeting? Whatever it might be. So you're just positioning yourself to see if God will speak to you. Maybe you go on the trip and you're like, nope, that was not for me. That's okay. It'll still be a good experience. And then you might go on another trip and the Lord might be like, this is where I want you. you know, right, because you had shared originally that you, know, you had obeyed by going and in that when you were there in the country you got the call there right right yeah you know i always kind of had something of a heart even way back when i was in seminary and i had to take a couple classes on missions uh, i was kind of had a heart for africa but i didn't have the call until i was actually there and then the lord spoke to me very clearly so yeah look at a world map or get involved with communications other people are putting out or just try going on a trip somewhere and see yeah. what it says because I love too, at the beginning, you shared that you just started by giving $50 a month and praying. Right. Like that's, that's where you started. And, and so now you have all these crazy stories. You've been there. Do you not even know how many times you've been to Africa now? Um, I've been there eight times. My, my ninth trip was booked. The tickets were booked and I was ready to go when coronavirus hit. So oh. the ninth trip got canceled. Yeah. I've been there eight times. You've been there eight times now, you know, so many relationships and we can get into that more maybe another time, but it started, I love how it started with this simple $50 a month in prayer, you know, cause that's yeah. so, that's, it, it feels like that's not a big thing, but it turned into something so big because you were faithful in the little things. Yeah, absolutely. And even in the money side of it, you know, it started with the $50 and 
I, if my memory serves me right, I think last year our small little church sent $36,000 to missions, something oh, like that. Oh my goodness, that's um, crazy. Yeah, last so, year, like the whole year? Like just yeah, for 2019, for 2019, I believe we sent $36,000 to missions. That's yeah. crazy. Wow, that's so cool. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks for doing this Taco Tuesday. That was really exciting to hear all those stories. And I'm excited to dive into more things with missions later. I know we've talked about like touching on counting the costs and hopefully getting more into what it would look like if you want to get involved with missions, tap into that more. Um, but I hope you have a great rest of your day. And thanks for, thanks for taking this time to share your experiences and stories. Yeah, thank you. I love telling stories from the missions field. So this was a real joy for me to do it today. Wonderful. Great. And thanks to everybody else who's joined us. And we look forward to seeing you all next week.